credit scores, down payments, interest rates. Car buying can be a numbers game, but you don't have to be a math expert to get the keys to your dream car. Just use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. Crunch your numbers and get personalized results so you know exactly how much you'll pay each month for your car. It's like having a magic wand for your wallet. Presto! The car you've been wanting is now within reach. So hit the road and leave your calculator at home. Auto Trader. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and Jerry's here, too. And this is Stuff You Should Know, a history mystery type episode, but that's not copyright infringement. Where did you hear about this? Because this was your selection that Dave helped us out with, and I'd never heard of this, and it's great. Actually, Chuck, it was a listener request ah. from not too long ago, from the beginning of January. A listener, okay. longtime listener, she says, named Laura Pietromica. Pietromica. Nice. One of those two. Uh, she wrote in and suggested it. And I'd heard of it before, but I didn't know virtually anything about it. Yeah, so we won't ruin any of the deets, but we will just broadly say that the Amber Room uh, was called the Eighth Wonder of the World at one point. Mm-hmm. And it was a uh, a masterpiece of Baroque uh, art made from amber. Right. And, and panels on a, on a wall. So it was a room made of these beautiful, beautifully crafted amber walls, amber and wood. And there's a mystery in that it, uh, it kind of disappeared and that no one knows where it ended up for sure. Yeah, it's actually considered one of the great uh, mysteries of World War II. Uh, we also want to thank um, Dave uh, relied on the work of Adrian Levy or Levy and Catherine Scott Clark, mm-hmm. uh, investigative journalist for The Guardian, who also wrote a book called The Amber Room. Mm-hmm. You know it's coming. Colon, uh, the fate of the world's greatest lost treasure. Uh, so big thanks to Dave and for their work. But uh, we should talk a little bit about Amber. Right. Because it's pretty amazing. We, sh- we could probably do a short stuff to pair it with this, but we won't. Right. And if your name's Amber, you're going to love this episode because we talk about how great Amber is the whole time. So just pretend we're talking about you. Uh, That's right. If anyone has seen Jurassic Park, uh, you know that uh, Dino DNA uh, was found um, stuck in Amber. Mm -hmm. And through that little short film that Steven Spielberg saw fit to make to help explain it, which I think at the time was probably necessary. Sure. uh, Most of us know a little bit. Uh, and that is that amber is fossilized pine resin from the pine tree. Yeah. Um, and there's the world's biggest deposit of amber uh, is in the Baltic area, northern Europe, um, southern Scandinavia, which is still Europe. But you know what I mean. And by the way, Germany um, is on the Baltic Sea. It's not landlocked. <laughs> so, um, but it all comes from pine resin. When a, a bug would like chew into a pine tree, the pine uh, would 
secrete this kind of resiny stuff to to not only like get rid of the bug, um, it would also kind of create a seal over that that part of the tree that had just been exposed um, after the bark was chewed off. Yeah, and that it's like a re- Band-Aid, sort of. Exactly. It's a tree-made Band-Aid. And that resin would sometimes harden enough that it would fall off of the tree, or maybe the tree would fall over, and the resin would survive um, uh, enough to make it into like a stream, a river, or something like that. And if it made it all the way to the ocean and was covered with sediment in time before it degraded, it would the process of it becoming amber, which is fossilized tree resin, uh, would begin. That's right. Uh, and then eventually, also saw it could be in like wet clay and mm-hmm. stuff like that, mm-hmm. and still kind of have the same effect. Sure. But it seems like the bulk of amber comes from deep, deep in the ocean, and it would get dislodged by weather and the movement of water, mm-hmm. and and float. Uh, amber actually floats. Oh yeah. So it's sort of stuck down there, but then it becomes dislodged. It floats to the top. A big storm will come through, and it just would literally wash onto the shore uh, wherever it was in abundance. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the Baltic Sea is certainly one of those places. And it was extremely valuable. I think it was, uh, I mean, how many times more valuable than gold at the time? At the beginning of the 18th century, it was 12 times more valuable than gold in in Europe. That's amazing. Yeah, which is one reason why this making an entire room paneled in amber was Mm. so incredibly opulent. Um, And when you polish it, it's also very beautiful. Um, oh, yeah. Th- there's, um, th- th- it comes in all sorts of different shades from like kind of a light honey color to, um, you know, a-, a watery slurry of brown sugar color. Mm. I guess molasses a- colored. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, and uh, you make yourself a slurry of brown sugar once, Chuck, and take a sip and you'll be like, brown sugar, how come you taste so good? <laughs> it is delicious. So uh, the whole idea of paneling an entire room in amber could only come from the fever-wracked, greedy mind of a king. Right. And yeah. this exactly <laughs> what happened with the amber room. There was a king of Prussia, uh, and his name was Frederick I who came up with this idea. That's right. Uh, in 1701, he was crowned the king of Prussia and said, boy, I would really love to do something splashy here to uh, to make my mark, you know? Mm-hmm. And he said, how about a room lined with this Baltic amber? Uh, I don't think we mentioned that one of, and this will come up later, one of the, the main centers for amber production uh, was uh, Kernigs- Kernigsberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, another was Danzig, but Kernigsberg, um, they're both on the Baltic Sea. And so he's like, Let, let's do this thing. We got all this amber, a room full of it lined with it would be pretty amazing. Right. And uh, so they they said, let's do this in the... Uh, Charlottenburg Palace in Berlin. Uh, Berlin was part of Prussia at the time. Mm-hmm. And let's pick out a couple of folks to get this going. And I'll go with Andreas uh, Schluter. Yeah, that's right. With the umlaut. Uh, Did you roll a, your the R and turn it into an L, though? Schluter. No, in Andreas. Andreas? Did I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, may have, I may have added okay. some flair. Sure. Uh, Schluter was a Baroque sculptor. Uh, he was an architect. He I looked up his works and um, did, did a lot of stuff. So it was very well regarded. Yeah. Uh, and then a carver named Gottfried uh, Wolfram mm-hmm. was who did the, the 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 work. And these guys were like as about elite as you could find 
um, in carving amber, designing something like an amber room. Uh, Gottfried Wolfram was recommended directly by the king of Denmark to Frederick I, the king of Prussia. So he he came very highly accredited, right? (laughs) Yeah. And Schluter, like you said, he had a bunch of stuff under his his belt, but he was really good at designing not just entire buildings or whatever, um, but in like really intricate, detailed work as well. And so that's what he, he got to work doing was creating this Baroque room and Baroque is a really, um, as Dave puts it, Baroque equals busy. Yeah. There's a lot of ornamentation. There's a lot of designs. There's a lot of shiny stuff. The way I would put it is that Baroque is maximum maximalist to the max. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you check out photos of, uh, well, I was about to say the original Amber Room, but as mm-hmm. we will learn, there has been a recreation and it looks like it. So you could look up that one if you want to. Oh, dude. Yeah. But it's, um, it's, it's amazing. It's, um, there are mirrors and candles and, uh, these framed panels with little figurines carved into it and little angels and nymphs and horses. And it's just the most intricate, um, grouping of like carvings and inlays and like tiny stuff that you need a magnifying glass to see. It's really, really incredible. Right. So Schluter was the one who designed the room and said, mm-hmm. more nymphs, more angels, you know. Um, but Gottfried Wolfram was the one who actually made this happen, who made this vision happen. And he was like, okay, how are we going to make entire an entire room out of amber? And he, he came up with a paneling method, a mosaic method, where he would take a panel of wood. Uh, in this case, I believe the original were all oak. Mm-hmm. Of course. And these were huge, like, like many meters wide, many meters tall. Um, and in, in uh, Imperial, that's many feet in wide and many feet tall. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, oak panels. And then they would put like, a, I believe, a bronze foil between the panel and the um, amber. Yeah. And then they would um, take pieces of amber, cut them, slice them in, in like five millimeter thick slices and add them, like just stick them together, almost like a jigsaw puzzle, but really a mosaic of different amber. And remember, amber comes in different shades and colors. So each panel had like just this riot of different shades of amber, but they were also done by artists who knew what they were doing with amber and, and pairing different shades of amber. So the whole overall effect was incredibly pleasing. Yeah. And that bronze foil, it had a couple of uses. One is it helped protect it, uh, that wood. It was a moisture barrier mm-hmm. between the wood and the amber and it's bronze foil. So if it's lined with that and then the stuff is put onto it, the, the most tiny minuscule little gaps and little things are going to have bronze foil behind it. So it's just going to make everything pop. Right. They also used, um, they came up with a special kind of adhesive just to make this room, just to adhere the, um, the uh, amber to the foil, right? Yeah. Uh, I think I saw ship caulk and beeswax. Oh. And a lot of other stuff they tried um, would not work because it would either like turn a certain color and like ruin the whole effect. So they came up with a special uh, adhesive for it too, right? So you can imagine this like really took a very long time to do. Yes. It was very slow. Uh, and, you know, any project like this is going to be slow, much less one this intricate. And in this uh, time that it was being done, um, both of these guys got fired. I think Schluter, um, just sort of, uh, it, it sounds like he just sort of fell out of, um, favor with the, the Royal family. And then I the know other why. guy, Oh, really? Yeah. He did. He was an architect, but apparently he wasn't a great architect. 
And he designed a water tower uh, for the Prussian royal family that collapsed. And so he lived in disgrace on okay. the, in the court for a few years. Tell that to Frank Lloyd Wright. <laughs> Move <guess>. the desk. <laughs> that was his quote. Yeah. Uh, Wolfram was fired as well. You know why he was fired? I don't know why he was fired, but I do know that he was barred from his workshop for life. They came in and said, you're not allowed to work here anymore. And they stiffed him. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. All right. I read that he was just grumpy and they hated his guts. Is that right? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Oh, okay. So basically the two people that were leading this project, designer and builder, both got fired. And then King Frederick died about 12-ish years after it was commissioned. So uh, along comes Frederick uh, William I uh, to succeed the first Frederick mm-hmm. and said, this thing is stupid. It's ridiculous. I don't want it. I don't want it. Like, but it's beautiful. And they've been working hard. He's like, I don't want to see this thing. Pack it up, get it out of here and take it to Berlin. And that's what they did mm-hmm. until, uh, well, I'll tell you what, let's take a break. And I just oh, said okay. until, and that's a great cliffhanger. Yeah. There's an ellipse. So we'll get to that right after this. Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa? But how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life. Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories. I'm also regularly joined by some of the most brilliant names in the field of archaeology and ancient history, authors of your favorite retellings from today, and everyone in between. Join me as I dive into the wild world of the ancient Greeks and their stories. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. 
that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Chuck, there was an ellipse that we ended on. Uh, You said until, until what? Until Tsar Peter I of Russia comes for a visit. This was in 1716, I guess three years or so Mm -hmm. after the Amber Panels mid-project were stashed away in Berlin. Right. And was really into this thing. And he's like, I really like this Amber Room idea. And I think I could make use of it. So Frederick William said, sure, you can have it. Give me 40 of your uh, grenadiers mm-hmm. or grenadiers. I looked these guys up. Yeah. It's it's exactly what you think. It's people that were the best at throwing hand grenades. <laughs> and also, I think, just generally some of your top largest, strongest soldiers. But, I mean, these are, like, not just hand grenades. These are early 1700s hand grenades. So I can't right. think of too many more <laughs> dangerous jobs in the Army at the time than that. Probably. You know, so he took 40 of those in exchange for the amber panels, mm-hmm. uh, took about half a year to ship them over there uh, to St. Petersburg. And then they unbox these things. And this is where it gets very frustrating and, and non-creative right. because they, of course, found that these were built for a certain size room. So they didn't necessarily automatically just fit in one of these palace rooms. So instead of trying to work with it and saying, maybe you should just put some additional paneling around or we can fit it in somehow. Mm-hmm. He just said, I guess they can't be used here. Yeah. And just packed them up into storage. This is the guy who got them out of storage, took them to Russia, took six months to ship them, finds that they don't fit the room. Like he just didn't think at all. No. And then packs them up for another 25 years. Yeah. That's like not buying a house because you don't like the ceiling fan in the bedroom. But that no, that's like buying the house and just leaving it abandoned because of the ceiling right. fan. <laughs> yeah, you're right. So he had a daughter, luckily, named Empress Elizabeth, and Elizabeth was like, I really like this idea. I'm going to make it work. She was a real go-getter as far as Russian royalty went. Big time. And she hired um, an Italian sculptor named Alexander Martelli because at first when she decided to to build the Amber Room out in her palace— she found that there was no one locally who had anywhere near the skills needed to complete this. So she searched far and wide for somebody with enough amber work experience um, to do this. And, and Alexander Martelli was the guy. And he actually finished creating this in 1745. And his story would have ended there. But uh, Elizabeth was like, I actually wanted to try a different. I want to move this to a different room. <laughs> oh, man. And Martelli was like, What? And she said, yes, we're going to move it over here. So Martelli ended up staying on board for more decades more, from what I can tell, 
like recreating this room. And every time that it was recreated, Elizabeth would be like more, more nymphs, more angels, more candelabras, stuff like that. And so Martelli had a lifetime of work basically moving the Amber Room around the um, Winter Palace for for Empress Elizabeth. Yeah, and continually building it out. Uh, I think in the uh, Catherine Palace, it was named after her mom. Mm -hmm. Um, It was the place where it ended up was three times the size of that original room in Prussia. Yeah. So not only are they having to keep rebuilding and adding to this thing, but they need more and more amber. Mm -hmm. I think they needed an, an additional six tons of amber. Yeah. And a part of me wondered if it was just like, I don't know, if this was a, if she really enjoyed the act of designing and and doing like house stuff, or if it was like an an obsession to get it just right, or if it was like my dad said it couldn't even be done, so I'm going to do it in every room in the house. It does. I don't know. There's a weird obsessive quality to moving it so many times. For sure. And it does kind of smack of the Winchester Mystery House a little bit, you know? Oh, yeah. Good point. One other thing. Okay, so Elizabeth, um, I guess she never actually finished it. Um, she had her niece or her niece stepped up, Catherine II or Catherine the Great, who, who said, um, who said I'm going to actually finish this in the, um, the, the Catherine Palace after, I guess, her grandmother. Um, and it, that's aunt. where it ended up. No, Catherine. Would yeah, that have if, been Catherine II's grandmother? I think it would have been her great aunt, right, if this was Elizabeth's niece? Okay, you're right. Sorry about that. So, um, no, it could have still been her her grandmother. Okay. It could have been Elizabeth could have been Catherine's <laughs> oh, parents, like, niece, too. And they would have shared the same grandmother just a generation apart. I will say this. I am the last person to comment on this because I am I get so confused. When it comes to lineage, mm-hmm. so don't listen to me at all. Okay, so we're just going to say that they shared the same grandmother. I Catherine should call my sister; she's great at it. Okay, let's get her on the horn. <laughs> say, hey, Michelle, how, how are they related? She'd be like, "Duh, second cousins twice removed." Like she can figure that stuff out. It just astounds me. That's a that's a great answer too. Second cousins twice removed. Yeah, it's got everything you need in there. <laughs> I think so. But Catherine the Great was the one that finished the whole thing, right? In 1780, after almost 80 years after the whole thing was was conceived of. That's right. And finished it um, with her own flourish, which was, I want four stone mosaics uh, depicting the senses. Uh, We'll have one for sight, one for taste, one for hearing, and one for touch and smell. It's kind of like, you know, those signs, handwritten signs where like the letters get kind of bunched up at the end because they started (laughs) with not enough room. That's how touch and smell ended up on the same mosaic. Like every sign made by an elementary school student, basically. Yeah. And also stone threw me off initially until I went and looked this up. Stone meaning colored marble. Mm -hmm. Did you see those mosaics? Oh, yeah. It was amazing. They are amazing. It looks like a painting. Yeah. Um, but it, no, it's a mosaic made from different colored stones. And she had four of these made. So it was like the amber room was already over the top. And then every single time Elizabeth moved it, it got more and more over the top. And then Catherine the Great was like, here's the finishing touch, these four stone mosaics. That's right. And I'll hire a Florentine artist named Giuseppe Zocchi mm-hmm. to finish this thing. Uh, I think it was finally, finally done in 1780, 80 years after it was originally commissioned in Prussia. And, uh, I mean, it, it's amazing. You got to go look at pictures. They had um, fit 550 wall-mounted candles 
mm-hmm. in the Amber Room. So you've got this warm candlelight glowing around this already warm, because, you know, Amber's just that very warm, like you said, sort of honey-hued color. Mm-hmm. And then that bronze foil, like it's just, it looks like just this glowing tanned uh, masterpiece. It was really, really pretty. The other thing about it too, Chuck, is like that was when you entered the room and were maybe standing in the middle of the room or just surrounded by the warmth. Mm-hmm. If you walked up to any wall, oh yeah, um, you would just be blown away by the detail mm-hmm. of the the what was what turned out to be a mosaic. It was almost like an impressionist painting. Yeah, where from afar it, it it's this seamless whole almost, and then as you get closer, you realize it's just a bunch of smudges, smudge paint like paint smudges essentially. Mm-hmm. And that was the same way with the the amber room. It was this cohesive whole, and then as you got closer, you saw it was all different mosaics of of amber. Um, and again, it's really hard to get across what what price you could have put on this room. Oh wow, yeah, it was the definition of priceless. Just from the yeah. sheer amount of like tons of amber that went into creating this room, and how expensive amber was at the time. But then also like the craftsmanship, the intricacy, the the uniqueness of it. There was nothing like it in the entire world, and it sat tucked in um, the amber room room at the um, summer <laughs> palace, the Catherine Palace, for a good. Almost two centuries, yeah. um, even after the 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 um, Russian Revolution of 1917, the Bolsheviks were like, "We're leaving this alone." Like this is there's nothing that's a greater symbol of the decadence of the the monarchs that we are overthrowing yeah. than the Amber Room. But it's so amazing, we're just going to turn it into a museum. Yeah. Uh, so you know who decided to mess with this? The Nazis. Boo. Uh, in 1917, after the Russian uh, Revolution, it was turned into a museum. Catherine Palace was, and the Amber Room was obviously a key part of that museum. And in 1941, Hitler uh, launched Operation Bar Barba. Sorry, Barbarossa. Mm-hmm. Redbeard. Which, yeah, exactly. When um, they invaded the Soviet Union, and everyone knew, like Hitler likes art and he likes to steal art he used to fancy himself a painter even and he likes to to pillage um especially stuff that he thinks were originally german right um he thinks he wants back and like we said this was born in in berlin in prussian berlin so he thought he had a a claim to this thing and as this invasion of uh the soviet union is going on they're packing away you know because his reputation preceded himself they're packing away art they're trying to get, you know, get rid of everything they can, take it to Siberia mm-hmm. and sort of put it in a, you know, in a warehouse. Let the Yeti and, guard it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they knew that the Amber Room was like, this is something he's definitely coming for. So let's let's remove these panels. And they tried to. And apparently uh, the Amber was brittle and it and it shattered. And they said, well, we can't do anything. So let's just cover it up with like, you know tapestries and stuff and maybe they won't notice it Uh, yeah uh, and apparently it took the nazis about two hours to find it um once they entered the the catherine palace and occupied it um and when that when word got out there they packed it up within 36 hours Um, successfully yeah successfully packed it up in 27 crates and they put them on a train to Königsberg. Um, which was the amber capital on the Baltic Sea, formerly of Prussia, now of Germany, of the German Empire, I guess. 
Um, and it was actually reassembled and displayed in the Königsberg Castle, which is like a straight up castle from the 13th mm-hmm. century uh, along the Baltic. That was just an amazing, beautiful castle. And we know that that actually happened. So we could we can trace the Amber Room to Königsberg Castle. It made it from Russia to Königsberg because there were newspaper announcements telling of how this um, it was being reassembled and would be open for display to the German public. Yeah, and that was it. I mean, it wasn't some temporary staging ground. They were like, here's where it's going to live. Right. And, uh, like, you should have seen us move this thing. I don't know why they couldn't do it because we did it pretty easily. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's staying put uh, until July of 44 uh, when the Royal Air Force, the RAF, came in uh, with a pretty drastic bombing campaign on Königsberg, including the castle. Um, although it didn't like destroy the castle, it was damaged pretty badly. Yeah. Um, but it seems like the, well, we don't know. The big question is, did the Amber Room survive that bombing? And there's a bunch of different leads that kind of guide us down a particular road that says it, it probably did. Um, one of which was a gentleman named Alfred Rode, who was an art historian in Germany and the director of the Königsberg Castle Museum uh, mm-hmm. for the Nazis. And he said, and this is after the war, but he said under interrogation by the Russians that um, we had a lot of art in there that was looted from Russia. The Amber Room was in there. I personally oversaw its installation. Mm-hmm. So he said it was definitely in there. But he said four weeks before that bombing, mm-hmm. he said that they evacuated it to a safer place. Right. So it, the bombing happened. The Amber Room, according to Rode, who was the guy who literally was in charge of installing the Amber Room in Königsberg Castle, um, had it removed and then afterward brought it back to Königsberg Castle. I don't know where they stashed it. That would be a really great question to answer. Like in the interim? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but it was back at Königsberg Castle after the bombing raid. Um, it was locked in a tower, and you would think, okay, well, it was safe then, because after um, the Soviet army ground their way into East Prussia, which included Königsberg, during a three-month campaign that um, where Germany saw 50,000 soldiers die in just East, East Prussia alone, um, the Soviets took the city on April 9th, 1945, and Photos that were taken shortly after the surrender show the castle is still standing. It's still intact. The problem is, a month later, on May 31st, 1945, when the KGB sent specialists to go look for looted Russian art, um, they were specifically looking for the Amber Room and found that the castle was ruined. It was scorched. It had been burned to the ground, probably by Russian troops. That's right. So this is, I mean, this is kind of where they ended up as far as not knowing where this thing ended up. I mean, the official line, I guess, was that, well, no, it's, you know, we found some charred remains of bits and pieces of this thing. Mm -hmm. I think they found fragments from three of the four stone mosaics uh, by Zoki that Catherine the Great commissioned. Yeah. And so the official line is like this, this thing burned along with the rest of Königsberg Castle in April 1945. And that's, you know, it's, it's, it's nowhere anymore. Yeah, and that um, very tellingly is where Catherine Scott Clark and Adrian Levy ended up. And remember, they wrote this really exhaustive book, and they're investigative reporters. So if they're saying, yes, it probably burned up in the castle, then it probably burned up in the castle. 
Uh, and that would mean cases closed, right? But but this is, like I said, one of the great unsolved mysteries right. of World War II, which means there are a lot of other competing theories out there based on the idea that, no, it wasn't in the castle at the time the Russian troops burned the castle to the ground. Right. And I guess we should take our last break. Yeah. And we'll touch on those theories when we get back, right? Yeah. Who hasn't heard names like Achilles or Odysseus, Cassandra, Medusa? But how much do you know about them from the ancient world? Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the podcast bringing the ancient sources to life. Greek myth and history is timeless, and unless you've been living under a rock, you have seen just how true that is today. But there is so much more to these characters and stories than what pop culture can do justice. I'm Liv Albert, the host of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, and every week I bring you stories from the ancient world, both mythological and historical, to breathe new life into these thousands of years old stories. I'm also regularly joined by some of the most brilliant names in the field of archaeology and ancient history, authors of your favorite retellings from today, and everyone in between. Join me as I dive into the wild world of the ancient Greeks and their stories. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
So there's a few things that people say, uh, this doesn't smell right. The idea that the, the Amber Room was in the castle and was burned up. Um, on the one hand, some people point out, and there are people who are like dedicated to this mystery, just like any mystery on the internet, uh, but they have been since long before the internet. Um, some people point out that the KGB apparently didn't think it was destroyed in the castle because they kept searching for it for decades more. It's a pretty good argument. Sure. And another person points out that there would be, um, there would have been a really remarkable smell of literal tons of amber burning. Um, incense like amber burning at, all at once when uh, Königsberg Castle was was um, lit on fire. It's not quite as strong as the KGB argument, but it makes sense too. But yeah. then on the other hand, you have friends of Rhodes who are saying, "No, this guy. I was I was a friend of Rhodes, and he showed me a big charred lump of amber in the castle after it was destroyed." So you have people from both sides without any real evidence conjecturing. Um, that it was or it wasn't destroyed in the castle. The ones that are the more interesting, I think, are the ones that say, nope, it wasn't in there. Right. Um, I mentioned that they found pieces, charred pieces of three of those four stone mosaics. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the late 90s, there was a tip uh, to the German authorities that there was an art dealer trying to sell that fourth, like fully intact fourth mosaic. Yeah. uh, And that that led to a dude named Rudy... Uh, Vorst, who was the son of an SS officer that was assigned to transport the Amber Room by train to Königsberg from Russia. So, I mean, that's how did that pan out? I mean, that sounds pretty firsthand to me. It does. Um, or did he just have the one panel and that doesn't prove because this was when it was on the way to Königsberg? No, it doesn't prove that the Amber Room as a whole wouldn't have made it to Königsberg. It could have. The, everything else could just be propaganda or lies or something like that. Um, but I think the ultimate thing is it's more like um, like it's it was possible that this stuff could have survived, and this is a good example of how it could have survived, like some SS Nazi scumbag looting the loot, basically. Well, wouldn't that one still be out there, though? Yeah, I believe it is out there. As a matter of fact, okay. we'll, we'll touch on where it is um, toward the end. Oh, is that fourth panel a part of the thing Shh. that I won't mention? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I saw that part. Okay. okay. That, that, that clears up a lot for me. Um, All right. Great. Well, let's talk about some of these theories. Uh, there's one called the Wilhelm Gustloff theory. Uh, this was a ocean liner from Germany. Yeah. Um, and it was bombed and sunk in the Baltic Sea in July. I'm sorry, January 1945. Not only that, Chuck, it was bombed and sunk with 11,000 people on board. Yeah, wounded Germans. Killed 9,500 people. Apparently, it's the largest maritime disaster in the history of the world. Yeah, I mean, would you call that a maritime disaster? An intentional act of war sinking? Somebody did. I didn't make it up. (laughs) I wasn't saying it's not a disaster, but... I I can like an accidental sinking sounds more like a disaster. This sounds Mm -hmm. like an act of war. I totally get your point for sure. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, So some people said was the Amber Room possibly in that uh, there have been diving expeditions. They have found nothing uh, in addition to other sunken German ships uh, that sailed around the same time in the same areas. Some of those have been uh, scubaed up and they've said there's nothing down here. Yeah, the Wilhelm Gustloff and these other ships were part of this 
1,000 ship boat lift evacuation that was like yeah. way bigger than Dunkirk. Um, and that it, since they all shipped out from Königsberg, a lot of people are like, it had to have been on one of those ships. We just haven't found the right ship yet. Okay. Or it could have been on a ship that made it because not all the ships in this 1,000 boat uh, boat lift were sunk. So it could have made it somewhere out of Königsberg in that flotilla. Right. There's another one called the Jonas Valley Theory, and we must have talked about the Jonas Valley in the um, the Attempt to Kill Hitler episode. Did we do one on that? <laughs> we did. We did. We t- we we. It wasn't just the Nazi speed episode. I think we did one specifically on the plot to kill Hitler. Yeah, this was the the big tunnel complex mm-hmm. uh, in the Jonas Valley in Germany, uh, sort of in the closing days of World War II, which is basically like, all right. We're digging out these tunnels. This is going to make our last stand here. Uh, didn't work out that way. Americans took it, uh, handed it over to the Soviets, and they sealed them off. And some people say the Amber Room was in those tunnels. Yeah, along with allegedly Germany's atomic bomb that was never used and probably may not have existed. Right. The Jonas Valley and also the um, Volpru House in Mine probably also both made appearances in our Nazi Gold episode, which was a good one. Yeah, because, you know, these tunnels and mines were uh, vast areas that they would use to hide things, uh, notably all this pillaged art mm-hmm. uh, among, you know, other stuff, valuables and cash and all or, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and I think they said that um, this could have been in one of those mines that was plundered by the British. Uh, and Polish workers, and apparently locals got in on the act. And uh, But they were saying that if that was the case, then you would see some of this stuff. There would be, people would be selling pieces of amber or, sure. or pieces of this installation, and that just didn't happen. That's a really great point. Um, there was a, a, a mysterious explosion that destroyed the Volperhausen mine in September of 1945, um, and everything inside was destroyed. I never saw an inventory of what might have been in there. Maybe everything had been removed and they were just cu- like keeping it. Sealing from, it. Yeah, sealing off. That's a great word. But um, the the thing that kind of gives legs to this stuff is like these like mine shafts holding loot and these huge tunnel complexes, they exist. Like they are real. Like it's entirely possible that the Amber Room could have made it to this. So it's not like there's just completely off the wall theories. Mm-hmm. Like the, if you don't, trust Nazis who were interrogated by the Russians after the war, it's really easy to to guess that the Amber Room was stashed away somewhere and is just sitting somewhere in some mountainside or in a basement of a museum or something like that. Yeah. Um, it's not, it's just not the most crackpot uh, adjacent um, mystery I've ever seen. I can tell you that. Yeah. It's like the end of uh, Raiders. Yeah. Exactly. When they wheel that lost ark, I don't think anyone, even when they saw that movie, said, "What? Come on, that would never that happen." I think everyone saw that and said, "Oh, that figures." You know, like yeah, for sure, stashing some great work in here with just a bunch of other stuff. And I mean, war is a really great mechanism for art and treasure to move from place yeah. to place. No kidding. Um, and in fact, Germany had been looking for Heinrich Schliemann's trove of Troy gold, Trojan gold, when he discovered the the lost city of Troy in the 19th century, 
Schliemann was as German as it gets. I mean, just listen to his name. Right. <laughs> Yet uh, that trove had been plundered by the Soviets probably in World War II because it was discovered sitting in boxes in the basement of the Pushkin Museum yeah. um, like years later. I think not that many years ago, actually. So it's entirely possible the Soviets have it, maybe don't even know it. Uh, some other ally has it, doesn't even know it. Or the Germans have it, and maybe they don't know it. It's just sitting in unmarked crates in, in a museum somewhere, like you said, a la Raiders of the Lost Ark. We uh, we showed Ruby that finally the other day. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah, I was like, she's ready, and she loved it. Man, that's awesome. That I mean, that really says a lot about her, I think. Yeah, she, she likes adventure movies and stuff like that, so mm-hmm. she was... She was in from the drop and, yep. uh, yeah, was, was way in and it was, it was great. And I told her, I was like, there's a, a few more of these and a couple of them are pretty good. Are you, so we'll, we'll, watch, <laughs> them, we'll watch them all. Are you, uh, are you going to follow the MPAA suggestion and wait until she's 13 to show her Raiders or, uh, Temple of Doom? Nah, she's fine. She, she knows that stuff is a movie. She doesn't get scared. Okay, cool. I, okay. I told her from a very early age that like movies is all make believe and you don't need to worry about any of this stuff. Yeah, people don't actually eat huge snakes that they cut the baby snakes out of. <laughs> That's right. Uh, should we talk about the Weimar theory? Yes, let's. This was another, you know, kind of like the rest of these. It's like, no, this thing was on a, a train this time. Uh, and it was, there were a bunch of valuables shipped to Weimar in February 1945. Mm-hmm. Um, it was basically anything that w- happened in the first, like, six months of 1945, it seemed like, whether it was a ship or a train or a tunnel, they're mm-hmm. like, it could be at any of these places because yeah. this train was carrying very valuable things, uh, very valuable art. Uh, the Coke collection was in there. Uh, the, the coffin for the Prussian King Frederick William I even was in there, ironically. Mm-hmm. And it was going to uh, the Land Museum in Weimar. And the director there apparently swore to investigators from Russia uh, that the day after it got there, that everything was shipped off to an undisclosed location. Yeah. And some people are saying like, no, he was lying. The Amber Room was there and it's it's hidden uh, in these bunkers near the museum. So uh, I think there are bunkers, uh, but when they checked them out in the 90s, there was no Amber Room in there. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't there at one point. Who knows? Yeah, and the, the coffin of King Frederick William I was like, moved around it was discovered in a salt mine in germany by the allies in 1945 so it's entirely possible they packed the amber room up once they could have packed it up no they packed it up twice as a matter of fact they could have packed it up a third time and sent it off with this stuff again though if you find the the coffin of prussian king frederick william the first why would you also not say we also found the Amber Room? Can you believe it? Right. Why would it have been separated out? Who knows? Yeah. But at the same time, why would they have moved um, Frederick Williams' coffin and not the Amber Room? Yeah. Case closed, dude. I just dropped my <laughs> microphone. Or I would have if it wasn't wasn't attached to this mic boom arm. Uh, Dave included some stuff here about an Amber Room curse. I don't really subscribe to this stuff. No, but George Stein's death is strange. Yeah, there were a few people connected to the Amber Room that died, but I, I don't, I didn't find like typhoid fever is not mysterious. No, a car wreck is not mysterious. No, uh, but George Stein, he was the he was an Amber Room hunter, mm-hmm. and in '87 he died uh, of what was ruled a ritual suicide uh, from his stomach being cut open by a scalpel. Yes, which is a very strange way to take your own life, and um, yeah. 
even stranger, he was naked at the time because he was found naked. And this forest that he was found in was um, a few hundred miles from his home. He was supposedly going to meet another Amber Room hunter. Um, and why would, if you were going to do this, why would you travel so far and do it in such a bizarre, painful manner? So it is, at the very least, a very strange uh, little footnote to the whole thing. Yeah, it's not a curse. Like, uh, maybe he was snuffed out because he knew too much or something. Who knows? Maybe. I mean, we're not promoting conspiracies, of course. I was just, it's just conjecture. No, but if you are into this kind of stuff, we should direct everybody check to the new Stuff They Don't Want You to Know book, don't you think? Yeah, our buddies, uh, our colleagues, uh, Ben and Matt and Noel have a book. Mm -hmm. uh, Just like we did, Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. Go check it out. Pick it up. Yeah, it's good stuff. They're good guys. Yeah, and I think we should finish here on this uh, rebuilt Amber Room that we've kind of teased out. Uh, in 1979, uh, Soviet authorities commissioned a full-scale replica in the Catherine Palace, uh, which is, like we said, a state museum. Mm-hmm. And uh, you sent me an article on on the, the process of this. I think they, they took three-plus years before they even started on it because it was so there was so much pre-planning yeah. into figuring out how to do this as an exact replica. They were working off of, there's so few actual like photo documents or descriptions or sketches of the original Amber Room. Yeah. But they had a pile of about 80 of them that had been um, photographed or 80 photographs that had been done in like, I think the 1930s of the original Amber Room. But they so were they black had to piece and white. that together. They like did. A puzzle. But they were black and white. So before they even did that part, they they had to like blow up these black and white photos and then deduce from the different grayscales of the different mosaics what piece was what color or what shade and right. what you know what around it was a different shade. What what the different shades were. That's how faithfully they've recreated the original amber room. Yeah, and that that uh, and it's right here. I don't know how I missed it, but that fourth. Um, mosaic, the touch and smell that was recovered, I guess, in 1997 through illegal sale mm-hmm. uh, was is in there. So I'm not sure how I missed that. But that that's one of the original pieces as part of this recreation. Yeah. So it's amazing. And it's, you can go see it. Um, it was open to the public in 2003 after 25 years of construction. 25 years, man. That's correct. That's incredible. Yeah, because they I'll, I'll tell you another amazing thing they did. They um, took one of the original pieces because there were pieces, surviving pieces of the Amber Room that had been like, this is actually from the original Amber Room. We know it like it broke off during transit or like those um, conservators from the palace. Uh, when they tried to remove one of the panels and it shattered, those things were were kept. So they actually had um, a, like one of the local crime labs um, analyze the adhesive that had been used. And that's how they came up with that. They used the same adhesive um, that the oh, original wow. one did. But like that's the level of detail they went into recreating it. It's just my hat's off to them. And today that Amber Room, the recreation alone is valued at $500 million. Which kind of gives you an an idea of what the original would be would be worth today. Although I've seen also like it would be in such bad shape that you would just be like, "This is it! Like this isn't really amazing at all." Oh, interesting! Wow, yeah, five hundred million. So yeah, I would recommend going and reading the Gemological Institute of America's website article on the Amber Room. It's got a lot of detail in it, but it talks a lot about the recreation process too. 
Very cool. You got anything else, man? I got nothing. Well, big thanks to Dave Roos for helping us out with this one. Uh, and since I thank Dave Roos, of course, it's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this Toast Water. Oh, boy. So this is not a uh, review by me. I still plan on having Toast Water, and I will follow up. But this is from uh, uh, Carl uh, Ruschaupt in Texas. Okay. So Carl listens to Stuff You Should Know with uh, his son and on fam- uh, family trips uh, when they go to scouting events and stuff like that. He said, mm-hmm. my wife tolerates it on family trips. So, Carl, you need to get her more on board. Yeah, turn the volume way up for this part. <laughs> that should do it. Uh, so they wanted to try the different things we were talking about in the toast episode uh, and said we quickly made a trip, uh, trip to the grocery store to pick up a loaf of Josh's recommended nature's own perfect white, uh, which was only available in thick slice form. That's Yeah, that's, that's a good start. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we fired up the old toaster, uh, which does operate on a bimetallic alloy thermostatic control. Uh, dropped in a couple of slices, toasted to perfection, mm-hmm. slathered with some organic butter, and placed it between two other untoasted slices. So this was the toast sandwich mm-hmm. that you talked about. What did he say? And he said it was like a mouthful of bread, exactly how you think it would taste. <laughs> uh, reminded me of the ramen noodle sandwiches I made in college with less flavor. Mm-hmm. Uh, added, he added some barbecue sauce and some sliced sausage just well, to <laughs> n- you know, gussy it up. I don't, I don't think there's a toast sandwich any longer. Well, no, no, no. He after the tasting, yeah, he was like, "I want to enjoy this." So I got gotcha. you. <laughs> and not wait. I don't want to waste trash. these three yeah. slices of bread. <laughs> uh, Henry, his son, thought it was great and devoured it plain. So oh, wow. just like a kid would do. Such a uh, Brit. <laughs> then we moved on to, uh, to. Well, no, this is Texas. I know, but he's British in spirit. Okay. Henry. Then we moved on to toast water. Uh, while the meal was in progress, we had another toasted slice of bread steeping in a pan of just boiled water. Uh, it was still too hot after dinner, so we took the dog for a walk uh, and allowed it to cool, three bear style. Upon returning, we decanted the khaki-colored liquid into wine glasses, toasted mm-hmm. each other's health, mm-hmm. and took a swig. My son immediately spat his out. Nice. I, on the other hand, thought it was great. Really? In fact, I think it would make a soothing tea for anyone suffering a stomach illness. Huh. So move over vitamin water, bring on the toast water. And this is uh, from Carl. He said, love the asides, love the humor, love the knowledge. From Carl uh, Rushout in Victoria, Texas. That's awesome. Thank you, Carl. Thank you, Henry. Thank you to a lesser extent, Carl's wife and Henry's mom. (laughs) And if you want to be like Carl and Henry and get in touch with us to let us know about the results of your SYSK scientific taste testing, we would love to hear about that. You can wrap it up, spank it on the bottom, and send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths Baby on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 